Welcome to the Woman Who Rubs the Mountain podcast, a gathering place for conversations about ecological embodiment and intimacy with place. I'm your host, Kendra Ward, acupuncturist and land alchemist, currently living on traditional Abenaki land in what is now called Vermont. In these explorations, we wonder, what happens when we rub on the body of the earth? How does the earth brush back against us? Waking up from a great forgetting, these inquiries bring us to the fluid interfaces of human body and land body. Along the way, it's my hope that we diversify our sense of relational kinship, discover creative, disruptive ways of living beyond our human-centric tendencies, and make wide space for a new, old, earth-honoring culture to reemerge. Because in these joy-soaked but bleak times, falling in love with the land and the beings where we live is truly the basis of healing and reconciliation, a resistance against ecocide, and the special work of our human hearts used well. Shara Armin is the founder of the School for Humans and Earth. She's a thought leader and teacher who believes we're ready to renew Earth and heal ourselves in the process. Through the Humans and Earth podcast, courses, and coaching, she supports people who are motivated to more deeply explore their place on and relationship with this beautiful planet. Shara is a flower essence practitioner, writer, gardener, and permaculturist. She holds three humanities degrees and brings her expertise and love of history, particularly the history of human-Earth relations, to her work of mentoring the Earth's regeneration. And if you hear in the background of our conversation some little gentle grumbles, those are coming from Shara's elderly pooch who was snoozing next to her. And I decided to leave those noises in because they're kind of sweet. All right. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Well, welcome, everyone. Before we get moving into our conversation here, I'd like to just give thanks and acknowledge the larger land spirits, the geographies, temporal and shifting the vast, sacred, mysterious intelligences that were here long before us and will be here long after us. The bodies and spirits of the mountains, the waterways, the clouds of our local landscapes. So just taking a moment to feel in and connect with the land wherever you are allowing the wide resonances to rise up into the room with us, into our hearts, into this conversation, into our stilling, our speaking, and our listening.
Well, Shara, thank you so much for being here with me today. And I'd love to just center our conversation with a better sense of the land where you live and how you find intimacy with this place from a body felt sense and how Mm. in turn this place is finding intimacy with you and loving you into being, um, maybe dreaming you up into the world. What a nice question. I live in the suburbs of Philadelphia and I have lived here for um, quite a while, almost 25 years, in fact. I am originally from Colorado, so my childhood was spent partly in Michigan, but mostly in the high Rocky Mountains. So that's an environment that still um, feels intimate and close to me. And I've also lived in California and then upstate New York, which was a really, really beloved space for me and sort of similar in terms of um, climate and and plant life to the Philadelphia area. I feel a really strong connection with the trees here. Although it was extraordinary to grow up in the high Rocky Mountains, that's a very dry climate with fewer plant species. And so when I came to the Northeast almost 30 years ago, I was just entranced by getting to live with tree and bird species and flower species that I had never seen before that require the kind of humidity that we have out here. So It has really felt like a privilege to be a gardener in this space. I don't have a lot of land, but you know, you can do a lot on a third of an acre suburban lot. And I've been nurturing fruit trees, some permaculture gardens, berry bushes. It's been very, very interesting to make this. Let's see, I've I've lived on this this area of land for about 17 years. And it's been very interesting to make it a sanctuary and then see who comes. So I'm not exactly sure what happened in this space um, in the decades before I lived here. I know the neighborhood was built in the 1960s and before that it was open land. Long ago, it was inhabited by the Lenny Lenape and I, I actually do have some sense of of what their relationship to this land was. But in the 18 years since I've been here, it's been chemical free. There are lots of fruiting things planted, native plants and fruit trees and berries, as I mentioned. And it's been so interesting to see (laughs) the flocks of birds who really like my yard Um, the array of insects, the way that my flowering fruit trees attract bee species that I doubt my neighbors ever see because a lot of them don't have this many things blooming or the little wild spaces at the edge of the yard where the rabbits can nest. I had a litter of fox kits once a few years ago, which was a tremendous privilege 
So I do definitely feel in a lot of relationship and reciprocity with this land and all of the species that call it home. And it does seem like the more I support it in being as fertile and vibrant as possible, the more fertile and vibrant it becomes. So I'll start there. Feel free to ask more if you like. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a lot of different ecosystems to live in. And um, isn't it so fascinating, like our own internal ecosystems, what we're attracted to, what places feel more natural to us um, out of all of those? I mean, it sounds like Colorado is still close to your heart. Um, and that's, like you said, so different from, you know, where you're living now. So, um, yeah, do you feel like there are, there are out of all of those spaces, like there was a place where, where your body was like, oh, yeah, so this feels really great for me, or this really doesn't feel good for me. You know, it's very interesting how the body can speak that way about, um, yeah, about better, our inner ecosystems. Oh yeah. For me, that place was the Finger Lakes in upstate New York. I arrived there, not immediately able to see how gorgeous it was because it was such a different environment from you know, the large mountains that I was accustomed to, but I quickly fell really deeply in love. And I was very privileged to get to live on some acreage there. The land belonged to someone else, but I got to live for a while on a forested piece of land that had beavers and was nestled in one of the little hill and valley systems in the Finger Lakes. And that to me felt like total home. So I agree with you. There really are those places where we feel more of a resonance or we more easily feel that sense of being grounded and comforted. And I do feel that in Pennsylvania also. And I've also come to feel over the years, I I know you you have a really beautiful attentiveness, it sounds like, to the place where one one lives. So um, this may sound counterintuitive to you, but I've come to feel that I do call North America my home because I've lived in several places, although I really do want that grounded sense of a very deep physical, spiritual connection to the place where I'm living. To a certain extent, I feel that in much of North America. And so that's interesting. I kind of dance with that. And I think, you know, a lot of people, those of us who are, of course, you know, settler colonists living here in North America, and certainly in the US, a lot of us have moved around the country based on how our culture has operated in the last few decades. So, you know, when my grandparents came here, um, well, my great and great, great grandparents came here from Germany and Lithuania. They all settled in Missouri and Illinois, but I have no personal connection to those areas because after World War II, my grandparents were part of that Western migration and settled in Denver. Mm. So, you know, I think there's a lot to think about all these different levels of 
what I perceive as a really, really strong human connection to planet Earth. So I also found when I, I had an extraordinary opportunity to visit Kenya in 2020, I felt intensely at home on the Maasai Mara, like profoundly in love. It's scattered with pinkish crystal chunks of quartz and <laughs> these amazing animals. And I I felt like I could have stayed for a very long time. So I guess in the biggest sense, what I'm trying to say is I personally have a very strong belief about a really important connection between human beings and planet Earth, such that you might feel at home in a lot of different places on the planet. And then post era of colonization, those of us who are living anywhere because of colonization, we, we may have experienced a lot of movement either in our own lives or in recent generations. So yeah, those are some things I think about. Mm, well, I appreciate that sort of macro viewpoint. Um, I think it's really interesting and uh, it makes me, I just think that there's continually widening out and making space for all the not knowing around this, like all the not knowing around the mysteries of what feels comfortable or what feels like home. I think that there's so much to it and, you know, just really, but taking the time to sit with it. Uh, Cause I think there's a lot that we can learn uh, in the process. So, and that sort of leads me to my next question, which is um, the sense of, you know, when we tune into to the land where we are, and again, this, this sense of the land dreaming us into being, you know, all the ways that we're impacted by the elements and um, the seasons and just everything that surrounds us that we do not give enough credit to in terms of its effect in our lives and our thinking and our ways of feeling. Um, so, you know, I think the, um, the explorations into how the land, you know, is, is teaching us, reflecting us back to ourselves. So I think of this quote from Sharon Blackie, she says, quote, places above all reflect us back to ourselves. More than this, they teach us the many ways we might become in the world, end quote. So, um, you know, just thinking about also the phases, you know, of our life and how the land where we are, um, what it's teaching us directly um, around what we might need, um, you know, just, just curious to kind of explore that a little further with you. Yeah, I really like that question. I think there's a lot of depth that can be explored there. And I'll say a little bit about it in a personal way and then and then also reflect on some things I'm seeing in the larger human journey right now. It came to my attention a number of years ago when we were having a problem with our house and we we had to well, we consulted a variety of experts, but one of them was someone who was deeply trained in a variety of 
home energy and shamanic approaches. And actually, I, I want to give him credit because he's wonderful. He's based in London and his name is Christian Kiriaku. And when we worked with Christian remotely, it became apparent that some really severe traumas had occurred on this land where I live. And I'm not quite ready to tell that story publicly because it's pretty intense. Although I, I think a lot about wanting to tell it at some point, but what I'll say to offer my personal validation of, of part of where you were going there is that I realized over time that some of the human traumas that appeared to have occurred on this land where I live have also occurred in my own life. So there was absolutely a mirroring there and uh, a simultaneous or a reciprocal way of healing and clearing that. What also feels really important to bring forward on this topic is that we can look at what's going on on planet Earth right now, or let's say in the last two centuries when humans have had an especially damaging influence. And we can feel all kinds of despair or self-criticism or fear, and there's lots and lots of conversation along those terms. But I think it's also very possible, and in my view, it's much more constructive to take this approach that you just did, which involves asking, what is the land reflecting to us? How are we in partnership with this? And as I'm sure you know, there are really important conversations happening right now about human trauma, about all of the trauma that we've inflicted on one another for multi-thousand years. My understanding is that has not always been what humans have done to one another, that there's reason to believe that we have existed and we can exist, and many of us still do a lot of the time, in non-traumatizing, healing, collaborative ways. But it's no coincidence, of course, that humans have been inflicting a lot of trauma on one another, maybe especially in the last few centuries, and the land has also experienced a lot of trauma as is reflecting that back to us. So for me, there's a there's a huge healing richness in seeing how these two stories are playing out together and recognizing that as we learn to recover from and completely shift or transmute our patterns of traumatizing one another, we also become people who cannot traumatize the natural world because we recognize we're in a deeply sacred relationship with it. So yes, that's you know some of the ways that I would say I really love that question and I think it's really important. And I think we're seeing more and more awareness of this human earth reciprocity we're really kind of recovering from that idea that, oh yeah, there's this planet and it does things. And then there's human culture that exists on top of the planet and it's all really pretty separate. It's not separate at all, of course. 
others. Agreed. Yeah. Well, I, I, I feel like um, this brings us to your vibration, your frequency in the world, which it feels like it's one of hope. And so, um, you know, this particular focus you have on helping humans move from eco-anxiety to a sense of eco-inspiration, as you call it, um, that perhaps our human worry is the last thing that the earth needs. And I'd love to just explore this topic a little bit more, you know, the sense of holding a frequency of regeneration instead. Yeah, thank you. It's so important. And I love to both think about it and talk about it from both scientific and spiritual perspectives, partly because I never know which of those perspectives will be more helpful to someone who's listening, but really even more because both of these conversations are so vibrant right now. So, you know, we're finding all these things in neuroscience, for example, showing that the parts of our brains that are inclined toward pessimism and fear and negative negativity and worry, you know, those are valid parts of our brains and they evolved to help protect us from danger. But that's not our highest order brain function. It's actually some of our more primitive brain function. And so if you care about human mental health, or also human physical health, because we know now that running the brain chemistry of anxiety, fear, depression is, you know, quite hard on your whole, um, then, you know, it matters that we spend more time in our higher order, more sophisticated brain functions, which are um, more creative, not only more analytical and geared toward problem solving rather than analysis and terror, but, you know, problem solving and creativity. So, you know, those are the types of brain abilities that we're going to use. And this absolutely, of course, involves our emotions and, and I would say our heart. Those are the types of brain functions that we need to be using if we want to make things better for humanity and the earth. Spiritually, of course, we talk about this in terms of vibration, um, in terms of, I guess, let's see, I'm going to nudge my sweet snoring pup here. So spiritually, we talk about this in terms of vibration, in terms of how you're choosing to expend your life force. You know, do you believe that it's helpful or constructive for you or anyone else to spend a lot of time in the fear, the worry, the shame, the anxiety. Of course, we all feel those things. But is that the space that we want to linger? Or do we make much more of a contribution to our own thriving and soul expression and the good of the collective when we choose to use those higher order brain capacities and our spiritual capacities and really cultivate things like gratitude, love, joy, our passion to connect, to help, to heal. So yeah, this is really, really important to me. It's actually been a, a very strong personal journey because um, for all kinds of reasons, 
um, relating to both nature and nurture. I spent a long time as one of those people with a stronger negativity bias, more anxiety, um, not really a, a major tendency toward depression, but certainly a tendency to see the problems or see the glass as half empty. And so it's been a really vital journey for me, both for my mental and physical health and to enable myself to make the contribution I desired to make to really practice and assess and explore, well, in what space, mental or energetic, vibrational, do I want to spend time in order to be the best human being I can be and the most healing or constructive or creative presence here? So I love to invite people to think about that. If you want to talk about it more, just let me know what was interesting there. But I feel it's absolutely crucial right now. And I'm very concerned about any kind of scientific, political, economic, or spiritual strand of conversation that is valorizing the negative, the critical, the despairing perspectives. I think it's very damaging. I actually think that's the most dangerous thing on the planet right now, probably, is the ways in which some people are advocating for fear and anxiety and grief and panic and terror. Again, those are human emotions. Of course, we're gonna feel those things. But when I see conversations in all kinds of places from the scientific to journalism to spirituality that are, you know, kind of valorizing or advocating for those positions, it, it really concerns me because I think we're made to do better than that. And it's imperative right now that we do better than that. You, you know, an inquiry that just doesn't want to go away for me, I feel like is this underlying static of what I would call maybe eco shame or eco guilt. Um, it kind of, to me, I feel like it shows up on the same dimension or consciousness level as like other types of negative self-talk or doubt, you know, and like this really like right on the edges there where it shows up and it's influencing how we're feeling in the day. Um, so, so I'm just curious in your own personal explorations, um, working with this static, I'll call it, of eco guilt and hmm, like this sense within the collective that, you know, wanting this frustration of, of wanting to be able to do more or leave the systems that we're entrenched in behind. Um, and along with that, you know, a continued difficulty in making sense of our disappointment of sorts in humans, you know, I think continuing to catch that story as well um, is a is a whole other big work. So um, there's a lot there and feel free to kind of unpack in whatever direction feels right. But yeah, curious about your thoughts on that. I love that you're asking about this because I think it's really important. And I'll start by saying that from my perspective, shame and guilt are probably unavoidable to some extent 
but they're very, very limiting. And so personally, I, I see shame and guilt as experiences, emotional experiences to be examined and worked through and resolved so that they are not holding us in a limiting space. So I guess, um, gosh, let's see, there's a lot to say about that. Oftentimes, it seems like shame and guilt get labeled as pretty toxic. Maybe because they're so limiting, maybe because they tend to involve assumptions that I'm a failure, I'm not good enough, I'm not valid. And so I think my my real concern about them is, you know, they hold us in that space. So if you're feeling ashamed of being a human being on the earth at this time, I think you should honor that and process it, but move beyond it so that you can be a creative and transformative presence. Because it seems to me like being creative and transformative are not compatible with feeling a lot of shame and guilt. So can we ever fully eliminate shame and guilt? I mean, very possibly not. I mean, perhaps if you bring yourself to a very high vibration of consciousness, but I would suggest looking at them and then getting to the point where we're asking ourselves questions like, what can be my most loving response to the circumstances I am in? So you and I both live in the Northeastern region of North America. So we're quite privileged. Um, I mean, we both, I'm assuming from our backgrounds here, just on Zoom, we both are living in nice, secure, comfortable homes. I think you and I both have work that we enjoy. We probably have enough food. We probably have transportation. These are very privileged existences. I do have some friends who are living in that existence and struggling with a lot of shame and guilt about it. And when I observe them, I see a heaviness and a discouragement, and I see a lot of energy going to that shame and guilt. From my perspective, that energy could be placed into loving yourself for where your soul has chosen to incarnate and then creating whatever feels beautiful to you, whether it's helping children in your own city or region or country who need help or overseas or animals or plants or an ecosystem. So I guess another way to say that is I really have concerns about how that eco shame and guilt are a major energy drain and how they really hold us in what, you know, Rick Hansen, neuroscientist Rick Hansen would call red brain, that lower brain function, or from a spiritual perspective, we would say, you know, many people say shame is like the lowest vibrational <laughs> energetic experience that you can have. So... I really am a believer in 
noticing that emotional experience and then seeing if you can take yourself to a place that is more love-based or um, more constructive or more creative. I do think there's a mandate that comes with privilege. You know, I think if you are living a comfortable life and you have the kind of awareness that you and I have about the needs in the world, then I do think there's a mandate not to sacrifice, martyr, and exhaust yourself, because I think that's a model we're outgrowing, but a mandate to contribute lovingly and creatively, restoratively and regeneratively in whatever way your heart calls you. So those are some thoughts. What was your second piece? Um, you said something else after you laid out the eco shame and and guilt, and I really wanted to respond to it, but I'm not remembering what it was. Was it something to do with, um, you know, feeling entrenched in the systems as they are? You know, the oh the, mm-hmm. right, and your the disappointment in humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important because, from my perspective, totally depends on where you're looking. So let's see, I have so much to say about this. I want to try to be organized. Um, uh, Maybe I'll just start with two pieces. One is history and one is the news. So I was originally trained as a historian. So I I tend, there's a lot of human history I don't know, but I tend to think in, in kind of that bigger perspective. And we know that by many, many measures, maybe even most measures, humans are living a more thriving existence now than we ever have. Now, that's not to say we do not still have grave problems, suffering, and injustice, because we do. But you can look at various historical time periods and notice we have more freedom and equality now than we did in many past time periods. We have more of an agreement now that war and conflict and abuse are very wrong and should be avoided. We have more of an agreement now in the value of every person, whatever their identity or their abilities or their status. So we're at a very imperfect stage in enacting these things like peace, harmony, equality, justice. but. A few centuries ago, we didn't even agree that those were desirable values. So, you know, I would also point to the psychological revolution of the last hundred years, which has brought us, at least those of us in industrialized countries, perhaps many people in the less industrialized world did not lose some of the emotional and heart connection that Westerners and industrialized people lost. But Um, as much as I'm someone who's very, very committed to spirituality, I also see huge value in the psychological and emotional awareness that has been percolating all over the planet in the last century. So whether we should be ashamed of or disappointed of humanity, I think really depends on are you just looking at the year 2023 or are you willing to look back a few centuries or millennia The other thing to me that's really important there, and and there are probably lots of other pieces, but but this one I really want to highlight is what kind of news are you consuming? Because 
if you are plugging into mainstream news, you are getting all the bad news about the world, conflict, violence, disagreement, economic struggle, um, climate catastrophe. It's not that all of that is not real, but if you pay attention to all of the goodness in your own circle, how well people generally treat one another, how hard people try to do the right thing. Um, I'm noticing, you know, just in the suburbs where I live, how many people are tending plants and bringing all kinds of spring beauty forward. Um, I also love to be involved with or a recipient of some of the positive news networks. I really love the Optimist Daily Solutions News. Um, I think one is, is actually called the Positive News Network. There are several others. And I think they're doing such a service right now because they're reminding us that, yes, there is a small percentage of humans who act in really terrible, violent, immoral, or unethical ways, probably out of their own trauma and desperation. But the majority of human beings are continually trying to help and assist one another and the earth. If you could spend your whole life simply trying to document how many people are trying to assist the natural world and plants and animals, there are good-hearted rescuers everywhere. Everywhere, all over the planet, there are people who are really putting some focus into revising and rebalancing their own lives so that they are living more lightly on the planet and so that they are assisting other people who might need help. So I would argue this is a time to be profoundly in love with humanity and the human experiment, our deep goodness, and our tremendous endeavor, especially I would say in the last two centuries, to embrace and enact equality and ethics and inclusion, sensitivity to other life forms. So I, I love that you asked this question because for me, it's a really vital area right now. And I notice among my students that they, like so many people today, are accustomed to seeing the bad news and being very demoralized. But if you simply change where you're looking, you can be so in love with human beings. And I think your heart can be really full of hope and optimism and the conviction that, of course, we're going to be okay here. Earth wants us to be okay with her. Most of us want to be okay here. And so many people are really, really trying. Mm, agree with you, uh, like a gazillion percent. And I can just feel your your energy rising as you talk about it. It's beautiful to witness your passion um, and your heart expanding, just thinking about this topic. And I am sure that you take that passion into the work that you do with others. I know that you have, um, you know, this focus on recognizing our 
are overlapping entanglements, um, encouraging folks that their work in the everyday world, um, you know, their practical actions on an everyday basis can be in co-creation with the earth. And so I'd love to just hear more, almost like on an everyday basis, um, your vision for how individual flourishing is meant to be intertwined with the earth's flourishing. Yeah. There are so many ways into that. And I think each person needs to explore a little bit to find out, well, what's most resonant for me? I can give some examples. So probably like you, I have a long-term interest in human physical health and well-being. And I do think it's exciting right now that, you know, we're, let's say we're 60 years into a, a big um, global focus on human health, nutrition, physical well-being. That's such a beautiful partner with our awareness of the earth, because you know, once we realized in the mid and the late 20th century that, you know, what you eat really matters and whether or not the air is clean really matters, whether or not the water is clean really matters. It's becoming, I think, much easier for us to now recognize, oh, right. And how the food was grown really matters. And there are regenerative, sustainable, agroecological ways to produce food that are not only um, not damaging to the natural world, but can even be restorative. And that is food that is really restorative for the human body. So I think kind of looking at this nutrition, food, water angle is a really, really rich one. Every human being is naturally attuned to care about their own survival and preservation and flourishing. And there's nothing wrong with that. So, you know, then I think it's really easy to get into this awareness of, oh, right, I'm in this reciprocal partnership with the planet. And that means the pollinating insects and the water and the amphibians who live around the farm and the trees and the soil and on the soil um, microbiome and all of this. So, I would say one one place is to really pay as much attention as you can to what you're eating, who's producing it, how it's being produced, how different foods feel in your body. Eating really conscientiously for your health and the planet's is a beautiful, beautiful pathway that's a, a really big contribution. Similarly, of course, coming back to your, your opening question, knowing the land where you live as much as you can. And that might just involve noticing the plants around you. Humans are so ignorant about our plant brothers and sisters. Um, I heard a funny exchange recently in public. A couple walked by a brilliantly blooming rhododendron and one person said, oh, uh, is that a hydrangea? And the other person said, yep, that's a hydrangea. And I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> you are you are really not attuned to what blooms in May and what doesn't and how we might differentiate one plant from another. 
So I don't, it's not like you have to go out and learn all the names of the plants in your area, although I think it's beautiful if you do that, but just trying to notice who else is living around you. Um, who are the birds? Who are the other mammals? Um, our dear amphibian brothers and sisters get so neglected and, and I personally love to try to notice them and connect with them. I... I believe 100% that our brother and sister species here know when we are aware of them and when we're not. When we meet them, whether we're walking in a wild place or walking on the sidewalk to work, whether we meet a bird or squirrel or insect, the sky or a tree, a shrub, with an open heart and an awareness of you're my brother's sister, we are alive here together, you are making a contribution that's probably much more complex and meaningful than I can even know. I think that's really, really meaningful. My own experience has been, and I, I wonder if this is actually especially true right now in the last few years, that plant and animal beings are very, very eager to connect with us. They really want to help humanity turn things around here. And so, um, you know, you can take my collaboration with Earth Course, you can study with Dr. Jim Conroy and Basia Alexander, you can study with Saskia von Diest. These are people I know and trust who teach deep skills for listening to nature and communicating with nature. Um, of course, there are many people who teach this with animals. Um, I've worked a little bit more with plants. And so I um, I mentioned Saskia von Diest and Dr. Jim Conroy and Basia Alexander, although they work with animals as well. But it's not hard to learn to open your consciousness to another being and I just find they're extraordinarily open to that right now. They want to partner with us. They want to teach us and they want to receive our support in whatever ways that we can give it. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. And along those same lines, I, um, I think it's really helpful to continue to push up against the borders and um, the edges of sort of our ingrained thinking when it comes to exploring these levels of intimacy with the living world, um, you know, calling back the viewpoint that used to be the norm amongst our ancestors, um, you know, the sense that when they looked up at the stars, that they weren't, you know, just looking up at these like dead blinking things, but that that the stars were also looking down on them or, you know, when they're walking through the forest, that the forest was also walking through them. And I'm curious about, you know, continually pushing up against our ways of um, exploring intimacy, you know, across species, you know, and, and oftentimes I feel like this requires a willingness for enchantment you know, a willingness to see sort of the everyday magic of our, of the world around us. So um, yeah, just keeping this kind of 
this theme going, this thread going. Um, I'm really enjoying it. And so, yeah, just wondering in your everyday life, um, how you might be pushing up against those, those boundaries of what we've been taught around closeness. I do think it's really important. And I am just thrilled right now that in the global scholarly community, there's a really exciting re-embrace of animism going on. So I will talk about this a, a little more personally in a moment, but I think it's important for people to know, well, a couple things. One is that every human being has an animist ancestry. So even those of us living in um, very industrialized or westernized places, we originally had ancestors before the world's great monotheistic religions developed. We originally had ancestors who were animist, who were indigenous to some place and viewed the world as completely alive and animated by spirit and sacred and living in a collaborative harmony. So if you like that perspective, it is in your lineage and you can claim it. I was really struck recently to learn that there's a group in Lithuania, I'm um, about three quarters German and about a quarter Lithuanian. There's a group in Lithuania that is trying to kind of excavate and re-understand the Lithuanian animist religion that existed in Lithuania before Christianity. Interestingly, Lithuania and other parts of Northern Europe were some of the last to be reached by Christianity. Um, and <laughs> interestingly, um, Christianity has its animist strands as well. If we think about someone like St. Francis or the scholarship of someone like Mark Wallace, at Swarthmore College who actually argues for a Christian animism. So I'm just saying that to point out that if someone prefers a religious affiliation, which might be Christian or Muslim or Jewish or Hindu or Buddhist or anything, there can be strands of animism in the world religions or the world religions can include or embrace animism as can various indigenous animist perspectives. Um, there's a very interesting thing happening right now in some global scholarship where some indigenous scholars and also some Caucasian scholars are arguing that what we need in order to restore the earth and human well being is an animist view that is even incorporated into science. So I just love the work of the British ecologist Stefan Harding. He's written a beautiful book, particularly about what he calls the new animism and holistic science. Um, we also have Native American scholar Gregory Cajete, Robin Wall Kimmerer, whom I passionately love. I think she's making such a huge contribution. I could list several others. So I just say that to point out to people that um, you can experience animism however you want to, but I'd love to invite you to know that 
animism is being invited back into so-called mainstream and scientific conversations. And that could be very, very exciting. So, you know, if this is intriguing to any of our listeners, read Stephen Harding's Animate Earth, um, read Gregory Cajete's Native Science, Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. I also really love some of her online articles, short articles. In terms of experiencing this personally, my experience is it's so intoxicating that once you get there, you'll never want to leave. Because when you can, it's certainly easiest to do this outdoors, but you also might be able to do it indoors, just in your consciousness or at a window or maybe with a companion animal. But when you can get into that heart space, and there's room here for your intellect as well, and certainly your body, but I'm going to just talk about the heart. When you can get into that heart space of recognizing that we are truly one life system, one biosphere. Many of us believe we were created in some way that was much more than accidental. So we have all kinds of different stories and understandings about that. But when you can get into that space of recognizing from your heart, we are one life community in a shared life system, and we are truly siblings. Like everyone and everything here is truly your brother or sister, your partner in this life system. We can talk about this in terms of genetics and DNA and evolution and the way that you and I wouldn't even be alive if it weren't for the microbes in our gut and the protective microbes on our skin and the soil microbes that allow our food to grow. So the scientific arm of the conversation is there, but just feeling this in your heart is so intoxicating and supportive and inspiring that once you get there, I think you don't want to leave. I think that experiencing this animist sense of what it is to be alive on this planet in this life community, um, <laughs> it is a conversion experience. And, you know, coming back to what I was saying earlier about how all human beings have this indigenous animist ancestry, it may be that this is our real home place is this heart-centered animist understanding that everything here is related to me. Of course, Native Americans, and I imagine other Indigenous people in the world, have these beautiful phrases that encompass this, like, all my relations. And again, I just think, once you start to experience that, and it maybe for those of us in industrialized countries, it might help to start with the intellectual information that I just listed, you know, about your gut microbiome, your skin microbiome, the fact that some 40 to 60% of the human food supply only grows because of the assistance of pollinating insects. And I'm not sure we'd have any food at all if it were not for the microbes in the soil. 
So I think for a lot of people, that intellectual awareness that science is contributing can help you get to this heart-centered place. You, know, you can take some of that knowledge and then look out your window or go sit outside and feel it. Um, you can also study with Saskia Van Diest or Jim Conroy and Bazia Alexander or take my collaboration with Earth Course and you can practice, well, what is it like to be in dialogue with a tree, shrub, flower, microbe, my dog, my cat? Because once you have an experience of the consciousness of another species, then I think also you drop right into that, whoa, all my relations. And it's so amazing. So yeah, I love that you brought that up. I am a huge advocate for... I guess, experiencing animism at every level from the intellectual and historical to the spiritual and experiential and embodied. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, uh, you know, just kind of gathering the threads here, I'm wondering um, if you have any offerings or anything else on the horizon or anything else that you wanted to tell us about your work before we close? Sure, I'm happy to do that. So like you, I have a podcast. It's called Humans and Earth. And I would love people to explore it. It's a combination of solo episodes where I share something that I think is helpful and also interview episodes with other people who are visionaries and contributors in everything you and I have talked about today. And I have a couple of kind of mini courses on the website. Um, one is about how to step into informed optimism. And I think that one is $7 or something. It's designed to just be very welcoming and accessible because as you can tell, I really care about this. Um, there are a couple other small courses on my website. And then I invite anyone who's interested to take a look at my collaboration with Earth Course because it leads people in a pretty deep way through exploring what is it like to partner and pair your passions and talents, also your fears and worries your gifts, your desire to contribute? What is it like to partner all of that with the natural world? I believe really strongly that we're at the beginning of an era where we are going to remember to stop doing things to the natural world and instead consult it first and move forward in acts of partnership and collaboration. So the course teaches people some ways to start to be in that collaborative process. And um, yeah, I mean, that's really rich. You know, indigenous people have mostly lived that way. Industrialized people have forgotten about it. I think we need to recultivate that kind of approach to being human here. And I also work one-on-one -on -one with people. I really like to coach and mentor people who are looking for their own pathway forward to this kind of contribution. 
I think more and more people are waking up and getting a sense of um, I may or may not change my career or where I live, but I want to make really meaningful, possibly very radical, but at the very least, really meaningful shifts in how I'm living or how I'm working or how I'm leading or volunteering or contributing so that I am more of a healing or regenerative presence here. And you know, we're, we're at a pretty interesting time with that where on the one hand, more and more people are feeling this passion to contribute. And also a lot of us are still feeling is that okay? Can I do that? Can I stand up to the system? Can I critique the system? Can I create something that is alternative and new and maybe edgy? So I love to support people who are in that space. And you can find me at humansandearth.com. That's where all of those various offerings live. Excellent. Well, we'll definitely, all of that information will be in the show notes for everyone to to take a look at. So thank you so much for spending your time with me so open-heartedly and just your generosity of spirit and, you know, all that you're doing in the world, um, your, your beautiful continued um, encouragement of the weaving of, of humans uh, in the living world. It's, it's beautiful to observe. So Thank you, Kendra. It was my pleasure to be in conversation with you. I love the questions you're bringing forward and that you are creating this podcast and bringing forward these ideas and insights. And thank you. Wonderful. Well, thank you to everyone for listening for spending your precious time with us. And if it felt of benefit, please do consider leaving a review or subscribing to the podcast ongoingly from whatever your preferred listening sources. That way you can be notified whenever a new episode is released. May we continue to discover new ways while also remembering old ways of relating and being in kinship as we continue to bring an open-armed adoration and devotion for this wild earth. And I look forward to being with you on the next episode.